Life is a pattern of immense complexity. And what you call yourself as a living organism, say, I am my whole body at the very least. Now, what is that body? That body is recognizable, and I recognize my friends when I meet them again, with luck, and you recognize me. Although the last time any of you saw me, I was absolutely something entirely different from what I am now. Just as the flame of a candle is never a constant. A flame of a candle is a stream of hot gas. Only you say the flame of the candle as if it were a constant. Well, it is a recognizably constant pattern. The spear-shaped outline of the flame and its coloration is a constant pattern. But in exactly the same way, we are all constant patterns. And that's all we are. The only thing constant about us at all is the doing rather than the being. It's the way we behave, the way we dance. Only there's no we that dances. There's just the dancing. Just as the flame is the streaming of hot gas, just as a whirlpool in a river is a whirling of streaming water. There is no thing that whirlpools there is the whirlpool, and in the same way, each one of us is a very, very delightfully complex undulation of the energy of the whole universe. Only by our process of miseducation, we've been deprived of the knowledge of that fact. Uh, not as if though, there was someone to blame for this, because it's always with our own tacit consent. Because life is basically... A game of hide-and-seek. Because life is pulsation. On and off. Here it is, and now it isn't. And by being this pulsation, we know it's there. See, uh, you, you don't know what you mean by on unless you know what you mean by off. That's why when we want to awaken someone, we knock at the door. It's not enough to slam the door once with your fist and make a big noise. But you keep up a pulsation because that by its on and offness attracts attention. Uh, all life, you see, is this flickering in and out. Only there are enormous rhythms in it. There are very fast flickering ins and outs like the reaction of light upon our eyes such that if I take a lighted cigarette in the dark and I spin it, you will see a circle of fire. Because the reflection of that cigarette tip on your retina lasts, it endures. Just in the same way as on a radar screen, an image stays a little while until it's revivified by another round. So in that way, you see, you notice continuity. And in the same way, then, you notice the continuity of a light because although, like, say, with an arc lamp, an arc lamp is actually a flickering light. And that's why they don't allow arc lights to be used in any shop where there's a circular saw moving. Because sometimes the flickering speed of the arc light so synchronizes with the turning speed of the teeth on the blade that the teeth look as if they're not moving. And so anybody who might put his hand on the blade would have it chopped off thinking it was a still one. So, in this way, very fast impulses are looked upon as constant. And we see where there are fast impulses, a solid thing. 
when you look at the blade of a propeller or an electric fan, the separated four or three blades become a solid disc, and you cannot throw an egg through it. Well, so in exactly the same way, you can't put your finger through a rock, because the rock is moving too fast for your finger to go through. That's the meaning of the, of the whole phenomenon of hardness. Hardness in nature is immense energy. But acting in a very concentrated space, restricted space, but going to beat hell. That's why you can't get through it. Now, from those very tiny fast rhythms, which give us the impression of continuity, there are also in this universe immensely slow rhythms. And these are very difficult for us to keep track of. And they impress us and depress us as our own life and death, as our coming and going, which goes for what is, to us, such a slow pace that we can't possibly believe that it is really a rhythm. We think of it as our birth, as something quite unique that could never occur again because we're so close to it, you see, and it's moving so slowly. And so, with that point of view, we are, like uh, Marshall McLuhan has said, he borrowed a metaphor from me, which is that we are driving a car looking at the rear vision mirror. That means that the environment in which you believe yourself to exist is always a past one. It isn't the one you're actually in. The process of growth, the, the basic process of biology is one in which lower orders are always being superseded by higher orders. But the lower order can never figure out, or only very rarely figure out, what the higher order is that's taking over. And may see it as a terrible threat, as total disaster, as the very end. But therefore can never be aware that the principle of growth always has and always will continue. Because that's what's going on. But you never know what the next step is going to be. Because if you did know, you wouldn't take it. Because it would already be past. Do you understand this? That any certainly known future is an event of which we can say you've had it. And in that sense it's past. When we play a games, and we say in chess or in a bridge or whatever game you're playing, the outcome of the game becomes certain. We at that point cancel the game and begin a new one. Because the whole zest of the thing, which takes me back to the idea that this whole thing is a hide-and-seek game, is that you don't know what the next order coming up is. But one thing you can be sure of, it will be an order, and it will comprehend you. At the moment, we stand at a time in history where we're beginning to think of a great countdown on the end of the human race. Terrifying possibility that through atomic energy, we may obliterate this planet and uh, turn the whole globe into a star. Maybe that's the way all the stars started. Imagine, you know, this great thing coming up. The countdown on the end. Seven. Six. Five, four, three, two, one.
Where have you heard that before? You sit on the seashore. And you hear the waves going in and out. And you don't stop to think. That's what you're doing. That's what the whole business is doing. And there are places where the wave mounts and mounts and it gets too big for its boots or whatever and it spills and breaks. And we could do just that. But uh, very important to realize that that's what you're doing because then you don't get panicky about it. And the person who's going to press that button is the person who's going to be in panic. So if you realize that that's what it is and that uh, it doesn't really matter if the whole human race blows itself up, then there's a chance that it won't do it. That's the only chance we have. Not to do this thing which attracts us like a kind of vertigo, like a person who looks over a precipice and is all set to throw himself over. Or a person who jumps out of a plane when they're skydiving and forgets to pull the parachute ring because he gets fascinated with a target. It's called target fascination. He just goes straight at it, you see. So we can get absolutely fascinated with disaster, with doom. Or, you know, all the news in the newspapers is invariably bad news. There is no good news in the newspapers. People wouldn't buy a newspaper consisting of good news. Even the free press is full of terrible news. (laughs) Except the San Francisco Oracle. And uh, the fascination, you see, for this doom might be neutralized if we would say, well, why bother about that? It's just another fluctuation in this huge, marvelous, endless chain of our own selves and our own energy going on. See, here's the problem, because of our myopia, because of our, the way we've, as it were, restricted consciousness to focus upon just that certain little area of experience that we call voluntary action. That's us. And everything else happens to us. Now, that's obviously absurd. Let's suppose you take in your hand one of those toys, a, a gyroscopic top. And you suddenly notice, the minute you get this in your hand, that it has a kind of vitality to it. It seems to resist you. It starts pushing you in a certain way. See? And sometimes you're with it and following it. And then sometimes you see it. It's just as if you held a living animal in your hand. You know, you pick up a a, uh, hamster, you know, or a guinea pig. And you hold this little thing in your hand. It's always trying to escape. So the gyroscope always seems to be trying to escape your hold. Now, in exactly the same way, what you're experiencing all the time, all sorts of things are getting out of control and doing things you don't expect. It's trying to escape your hold. All right, then don't grab it so hard. And you discover that this living thing that you're feeling, like the gyroscope top, it's your own life. Because you can see very simply that you would not understand the experience that you call voluntary action and decision, being in control and being yourself, unless in opposition to that, there was something else. You couldn't realize self and control and will unless there was something 
other, out of control, and instead of will, won't. It's the two together only that produces the sensation that you call having a personal identity. Only, there is a funny thing about human consciousness, which has been worked out very carefully in Gestalt psychology, which is that our attention is captured by the figure rather than the background, by the relatively enclosed area rather than the diffuse area, and by something moving rather than what is relatively still. And to all those phenomena that in this way attract our attention, we attribute a higher degree of reality than the ones we don't notice. That's only because, for the moment, those are more important to us. Consciousness, you see, is a radar that is scanning the environment to look out for trouble, just in the same way as a ship's radar is looking for rocks or other ships. And the radar, therefore, does not notice the vast areas of space where there are no rocks, no other ships. So in the same way, our eyes, or rather the selective consciousness behind the eyes, only pays attention to what we think is important. 